episode 415 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Andrew Swafford. Michael O'Malley. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we're going to continue our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with 1964's Soy Cuba, or for us capitalists, I am Cuba. <laughs> capitalists don't know how to speak Spanish. It is true. <laughs> um, this episode brought to you by Pabst Blue Ribbon. Pabst Blue Ribbon is a big supporter of Cinematary. Um, I have a... Union exactly, made. And I have, uh, you know, Pabst Blue Ribbon on, uh, on our sponsorship, they said, what are you talking about? We don't know what this is. It's Is it a podcast? We don't really, we are not interested. Dot, 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 stop contacting me. <laughs> Pabst Blue Ribbon, proud sponsor of the Cinematary Podcast. <laughs> um, but let's go ahead and... Yeah, people. I, that sounds like a bringing endorsement to me. Um, well, let's go ahead and jump into uh, into movies we saw this week. And uh, Momali, I'm going to kick it off with you. Yeah, I didn't actually see this movie this week. Uh, oh, full disclosure, in the interest of honesty, I wouldn't want to deceive our listeners. I watched this movie a few weeks ago, but I've not been watching movies recently that often because I was out of town. But... This is probably the best movie I've seen recently, um, which is The Hole, uh, which is a 1998 film directed by Simon Lang. Um, yeah, Lang. yeah, big ol', um, especially in his later career, big ol', like, slow cinema dude, I'm led to not believe. But I've not actually seen his later films. I've seen, uh, well, I've seen Goodbye Dragon Inn, uh, and I've also seen... That is very, very slow. I forgot slow. about that for a second. Um, and then I saw Rebels of the Neon God, which is not that slow. And then I saw this movie, The Hole, which is maybe, in terms of, of, of slowness, in between the two. Um, but it's not really like either of those movies. Um, except for the wetness, I guess. Goodbye Dragon Inn is a very rainy movie, and uh, The Hole is a very rainy movie, too. Uh, so what The Hole is, is it is a movie that takes place in a futuristic um, Taiwan um not that futuristic. Uh, it's uh, at the end of the millennium, so 1999, uh, and then going into the year 2000. Uh, so the the far off future of Y2K, and in this far off future, uh, a disease has spread throughout Taiwan, and the um, the area has become partitioned between people who are infected and people who are not and the people who are infected have to stay in this part of the city and the disease is weird because it makes you think that you're a cockroach and so you always try to like crawl into dark spaces um and at the same time uh there are people who are didn't leave the the partition when uh they they created it and so there's uninfected people in this place as well um which are our protagonists um, and they're holed up in their apartment, kind of quarantined. Um, there is, uh, they're, they're neighbors, basically, like uh, top and bottom floor neighbors. So when, the dude lives on top, um, and then down in one floor below, immediately below his apartment, is uh, this lady. And uh, they're basically just chilling in their apartments, for the most part, or their apartment building. They walk around a little bit. Um, uh, and just kind of weathering this uh emergency and uh they're like watching the news and listening to the radio and like seeing what's going on in the outside world but they're not really leaving their home 
and uh it's also raining torrentially like there's some sort of climate thing that's gone on where all of a sudden it's raining and will never stop um and so their apartment is like leaking and it's kind of gross because of that um and also um because their apartment is bad and crumbling uh, a hole forms uh, between their two apartments so they can kind of talk to one another um, and that's kind of the premise of the movie is these two people who are trapped more or less and have been abandoned by their their government and have been uh, you know kind of alienated from those around them because the other people think they're cockroaches um, they can talk to each other through this little hole and it's a pyramus and thisbe adaptation it's Ends better than Pyramus and Thisbe. Uh, spo- spoilers. Good. But yeah, um, I thought this movie was great. Um, really, really good. It, one, is part of the grand tradition of art films that are just relentlessly moist all the time. So you've got like Tarkovsky's Stalker. You've got uh, the other Simon Ming Lang movie I, I mentioned, Goodbye Dragon Inn. Uh, you've got like on the more like blockbustery side of like quote unquote art films, you've got like uh, Blade Runner, right? You know, this is like uh, a grand tradition, and it does it great. Um, the movie has just this tactile feel to it that I love. Um, it's all grimy, and uh, the rain's coming down. So, um, like a lot of slow cinema or slow cinema adjacent things, it has a kind of ASMR quality because a lot of it's very quiet and you hear the rain. Um, but there's also this kind of intensely sad desperation at the core of it too, because these people, um, are like as alienated from society as you can get, right? Like the government doesn't recognize them. Uh, their peers don't recognize them and all they have is to cling to each other through this little hole where they can talk. Um, oh, and another thing too, uh, the pipes are bursting, so the guy's toilet um, will flush into her apartment, um, which is also gross. And so he has to like learn to like pee in a bucket instead of flushing the apartment because he's a nice guy. Um, so there's all this kind of gross stuff going on, um, and that is just like really exquisitely rendered. Um, it's just a it's a very vibey movie. Um, my son, who's three, was watching this with me. And he was just kind of like zoning out because it's like that kind of movie where you can do that, especially if it's subtitled and you don't realize how depressing everything is because you can't read subtitles. Um, but ultimately, it's not a depressing. I mean, it is depressing, but ultimately, it's a very sweet movie about these two people connecting. And that is kind of, uh, I think, uh, sweet. And I thought it was kind of moving, these people's relationships. And like, it's impossible to watch this movie now and not think of like, coronavirus quarantine like and i don't know how this movie would have felt to me if i had watched it like i don't know like april of 2020 or something um i you know it may have been like too close to home but uh upon reflection now that we're all you know just pretending like this coronavirus thing is is gone um and and you know society is quote-unquote normal now um it really i think does effectively capture that feeling of isolation that feeling of you're not sure like who you can interact with without like risking you know disease um that feeling of um you know being alienated from the government because it has kind of like created a, a, a caste system in terms of like who it um gives uh you know recognition to um there i mean it it's obviously kind of um 
silly in some ways, you know, the cockroach thing. But in terms of like the emotional landscape of weathering like that quarantine season, like I think it um, it resonated a lot. And I think even beyond that, like it's a movie about how two people who are alienated find each other and can have like a meaningful human connection, even though the rest of the world has kind of deprived them of that. And so like, I don't know, COVID notwithstanding, I think it is still um, a really meaningful and moving movie. So it's good. I recommend it. How disturbing is the cockroach stuff? Uh, you don't see a ton of it, but I mean, people are, I mean, it, it kind of looks silly a little bit like it's this is a movie that is kind of it has some laughs in it and it's like a satire in a lot of ways so some some of this is like kind of meant to be funny um it's not disturbing in and of itself like you just see these people like scurrying under boxes or something um like on hands and knees um but like conceptually you know that like oh this is serious because these people like can't be in light anymore because they'll be um they always want to run away from it. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it kind of, it, it looks silly, but by the end of the movie, once you're kind of into the vibe uh, and into like the world that this movie is, when you start yeah. seeing people like that, it just is sad. This is one of the Simon Lang movies I've not seen. So I need to check it out at some point. It's worth, it's worth a, a watch. Yeah. Just go find yourself a dark corner and tune it off. It would be like, I don't have a very like elaborate, like movie watching set up at my house but if you have like some sort of like dark room with like really good sound system you know where you can just shut out the outside world and just be completely uh enveloped by this movie it's the kind of movie that i think would really benefit from that um and it is not like if people are scared of slow cinema or if you've seen goodbye dragon in for instance which is like very slow uh this is not quite that this is um, maybe more on the stalker end of things, but it's like half the length of stalker. So, um, yeah, it's it's pretty engaging. I thought. Cool. Uh, Where did you watch it? Library DVD. <laughs> <laughs> so check your local library, or I think it's on Criterion. Maybe? Uh, it is not on Criterion. Dang. Um, Letterbox says there is no way to stream it. No way. So well, that's a lie. I'm sure. So. You know, hit up your local YouTube or Daily Motion site, and, <laughs> and maybe they'll have it. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to shift this over to a widely different set of films, and that is, I'm going to talk about two early Adam McKay movies as I watch. I don't see them as that different. <laughs> as I watch uh, Adam McKay movies uh, from when Adam McKay was good. Um, all right. One the first one. Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy. This one, out of, I think most of them definitely has uh, the most zeitgeist, um, definitely has the most zeitgeist kind of permeating qualities of it. Um, it's it's not super, it's, 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 it's really not super dated because a lot of the humor, a lot of the humor about the, the, the four guys, uh, Will Ferrell, Paul Rudd, Steve Carell, and uh, uh, David Kuchner um, being super sexist to Christina Applegate is the point of the movie. Um, and so... Is it a movie about workplace harassment? Is that the, is that the it's a, satire? It's a little bit of that, a little bit of just like... Um, 
a little it, it also and this is i'll probably get into it more when i watch anchorman 2 it's also just a kind of a, a media commentary as well so it's more about like the you know yeah. getting having more f- women on on television news rather than just being like walter cronkite and uh people of that nature um just ex- ex- extremely exaggerated uh is there anything about it that feels very true as a person who works in news? No. <laughs> Bad satire. Uh, no, well, it's it's more of satire. It's it does I does kind of hit on like like the push for like the push for uh, kind of diversity as just kind of putting like make like signing the person and going oh we got a diverse hire and then not utilizing them at all um which i think is kind of apt because they like hire the christina applegate character and then just i I forgot what the first story is that they give her it's like a it's like a chicken like somebody chasing a chicken around town um and they just kind of like dump her to these to these uh terrible stories um it also, you know, when they're talking about diversity, opens up for the great Ron Burgundy line where he's, they're like, you know, uh, Ron, do you know what diversity is? And he's like, I think diversity is an old steamship back from the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, no, it still it still holds up. I I need to watch the second one. The second one is, is super funny. I, th- I think it might be better than the first one. And it also has a really, it has a great searing satire of, of media but like it's making fun of like the 24-hour news cycle um and more it gets more into like new media compared to uh uh the what it's spoofing here in the 70s um but this one it still holds up there's still i mean i don't know i I like will ferrell he's he he can be very he can also be obnoxious but he's he's generally pretty entertaining and in this one and in this one he definitely like like this character is like fully formed and it's become its own thing you know he even had like a podcast for a while where he was playing ron burgundy yeah what that went on for like years (laughs) um yeah look it up (laughs) was he commenting on the news like stephen colbert did yeah, I mean it's kind of Colbert Report ish. It's not it's not um, spoofing like a specific, like a right wing or left wing type thing like Colbert was doing. It's more just spoofing. It's it's more spoofing like the 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 personality, the media personality. I mean, and I think it kind of gets to some satire there. Even like even today when you have like the Rachel Maddows and the Anderson Coopers and the Tucker Carlsons, like these these like you know people who are in front of the screen that you're like I know them. This one is more um is more spoofing to like the the Walter Cronkite like that that era of people as well and kind of just like making this like uh, larger than life personality who people just have this um, you know complete trust in uh, as as this news uh, personality like one of the, the funny traits that he has is whatever is on the teleprompter he will read and so that that, like, that leads to like his downfall because instead of um, instead of saying stay classy San Diego which is his sign off line uh, the Christina Applegate character they, they bribe the person to change it to fuck you San Diego it's or is it go, yeah, fuck, go fuck yourself, yourself San Diego? So he's like, he's like, go fuck yourself, San Diego. And he's like, da 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 da. He's like doing like the end of the news stuff. It's great. Um, 
but no, it's still it's still funny. I, I I think it's I don't think it's it's lost a little bit of it just because it's so it's so kind of in pop culture to the to a degree now that there's a lot of lines in it um, that really just don't have a that are just kind of uh, 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 neutered because they've been used so often. Uh, For a while, I love lamp was a thing that people liked yeah. to say. That's a weird thing to quote doesn't make any sense out of context but honestly the it had the best scenes it has well one the uh the and it's even it gets even like a, more absurd in the second one but the the fight between all the news channels is still great like just a great that scene. is funny because uh, you start with the vince vaughn led news channel and then there's the luke wilson new channel who like they cut off his arm and then like in the last scene he's like doing the news with the one arm and they like pull off so then he just has no arms he's like trying to do it's just it's stupid um and then they have like tim robbins is the pbs station um and they keep asking for pledges and then, uh, and then they, <laughs> and they have Ben Stiller like in like, p- like complete manic Ben Stiller mode as like the, the uh, Hispanic news channel, and, the, and then they just have this insane, you know, incredibly stupid fight where people are like getting killed and stuff, and it's just these news, uh, these news anchors. Um, that's a great scene. Wait, is Ben Stiller playing a Hispanic character? Yeah. that's the least. <laughs> he could be from Spain. What's that? He could be from Spain. They're white, white Spanish speakers. Hold on, let's I think look Ben Stiller's a New Yorker. No, no, no. I don't mean Ben Stiller himself, but like his character could be European. Sure. <laughs> I mean, he's not, he's not Hispanic, but he's not Hispanic. In the, in the, uh, <laughs> uh, in the, uh, in the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the whole course of the stupidity of this, of the news angle, of the news anchor fight, it's kind of fits in about. Helps her. It, it does. If you, and I'll probably talk about it when I watch the second one. It does like get to this level of absurdity with that one because you have like what is it? Yeah, like Will Smith is like ESPN News. You have like Kanye West is there as like MTV News. Uh, my favorite is John C. Riley is playing the ghost of Stonewall Jackson for whatever reason. From the you have uh, you have the history, he's brought back to life through the History Channel, who the lead anchor is Liam Neeson. Like, um, it's yeah, no, but the Anchorman solid. I don't know if it's it's. I, I think it's a little overblown as like being one of his better ones, but I do think this one right here, Talladega Nights Ballot Ricky Bobby, is fantastic. Um, this is this is a weird one. I think it kind of got labeled as stupider than, than what it is. I think people kind of buy in that it is this kind of like low brow comedy um, that kind of uh, feeds into the audience. It's kind of making fun of, which is unfair because it's like hundred percent really making fun of this audience. Um, because and I saw I saw a letterbox review. Um, that said that Talladega Nights spoofs the Bush administration better than Vice does. And that's a hundred percent true. Um, you just have like, it's a movie that's just coursing with excess. Like, I think the best example of it is when Ricky Bobby, who's the Will Ferrell character, they're having dinner at the dinner table. Um, and his wife, who's played by Leslie Bibb and he has the two kids who are just cussing everything out and the grandpa and like, the dinner is set up there's like powerade and mountain dew like on the table they're passing around like 
Domino's, but it, like Domino's pizza, but they have like the individual plate of Domino's. Um, <laughs> you have like like they have all the different like logos on everything. He's I think he's wearing like a Powerade jacket, um, <laughs> and and it's just like it's 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 honestly it's it's incredible like as this kind of commentary on not just like NASCAR racing or anything like that, but just like the like there's not too many moments where you're not inundated with just brands and like patriotism and all of this. And I think it kind of, it really does get to the heart of just how like, and because the whole point of the movie is that like Ricky Bobby is this uh, incredible NASCAR driver. He has everything he wants. Um, but then he has this, this accident um, when he's trying to beat the the French uh, Formula One driver who's played by Sasha Baron Cohen um, and kind of like loses his groove and then everything else, like he loses his wife, he loses all his sponsorships, he's off the team and all this kind of stuff. Um, and it does kind of get into like the, the, the shallowness, the vapidness of of not only just like a NASCAR driver, but just any sort of like celebrity of this magnitude. It could be, you know, somebody like a Lionel Messi in soccer. It could be uh, somebody like Tom Brady in football, just like who, like who is like this larger than life, you know, icon figure. And it could even be just like celebrities and how, and just, you know, there is just kind of this, this, this um, soullessness in the whole thing. Um, it's not perfect. I don't think it kind of gets a little bit lost in the second half of the movie when he's like trying to kind of work his way back to, um, to, to kind of NASCAR fame, even though it does, uh, introduce Gary Cole as his, like, as his dad who, uh, has like early in the movie, he tells Ricky, he's like, if you ain't first, you're last. And then like, as an adult, he's like, but dad, that's what you told me that like, I've been living my life like that. And he's like, he's like, Ricky, I was high. You can be first. You can be second. You can be third. <laughs> he goes, hell, you can be fourth. <laughs> um, after he gets kicked out of an Applebee's during dinner, which is just like the whole sentence is just great. Um, but no, I think this movie has, uh, has a little bit more going on than it probably is given credit for. John C. Riley is pretty wonderful in this movie. It's just like this, um, as like his kind of second. His, uh, his 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 best friend and second in command at one point. So the the whole thing in the movie is that because they're gonna get rid of Bicky uh, of Ricky, they uh, they put John C. Riley's character, who's Carl Naughton Jr., uh, as like the new race car driver. And so because of that, Ricky's wife leaves him for John C. Riley, and then like it starts this, starts this whole thing where Ricky's like, I don't want to be friends with you anymore. And, but John C. Riley continues like, just because he's like, you know, he like calls and checks in all the time. He's like, why am I even talking to you? And he's just like, Oh, they have this whole like subplot where there's like a ghost in his house and they don't really follow through with it, which sounds hilarious. But, uh, but no, he, he's just, he, he's just great. Um, I'm really excited to the next, the next two Adam McKay movies. Um, are probably two of my favorites uh, of him. The first one is Step Brothers, which is an incredible satire of um, like gig economy and uh, the millennial workforce. Um, and then the other guys from 2010, which is just over, uh, which I think probably from top to bottom I laugh at the most. Um, and then uh, I think then Anchorman two before we start getting into like serious cinema. Uh, um, thought or question about um, Talladega Nights as satire? 
Um, I feel like I've heard this movie quoted um, most often by the people that it's satirizing. Um, do you think that, like, how does that kind of calculate into our evaluation of how good of satire it is? If the people that it's satiri- satir- satirizing don't get it or don't know what's being said about them, like, does that make it better because it's sneakier or worse because it's not like communicating effectively. well I, th- I don't think the satire ne- like the people who it's satirizing necessarily have to like it's not like they're going to be like oh, well um you know the, <laughs> yeah like, like you think of like life of brian like we're like we're christians like watching that and the, like watching that like without any knowledge and to be like you know, well, bless my stars. Um, I, I I think that it, like, it is sneakier than you think because if you listen to like the like the he he's constantly talking about stuff in a way that would appeal to the type of person that it's satirizing, but he says it in such a and he does the, and they do the same thing and I think this is the kind of key to Adam McKay through all these movies is he does it in a way in a subtle way because of like the kind of like small nuances of the comedy that make it that you realize oh no he's making fun of that it's which which kind of is is what's interesting to me because he loses all that subtlety in his last three movies and it's kind of like the satires there just slapping you in the face um which i feel like which i mean you know i would feel like is is more ineffective you know you think about like vice or something like that it's just an ineffective movie um so I think it's tough, you know, I don't know, I think it, like in a perfect world, you would want the people that they're satirizing to be like, well, they got me, I need to change my ways, but that's never going to happen, so. <laughs> that's true. And I would, pre- I do prefer a uh, too subtle Adam McKay uh, to a too uh, on the nose. Yeah, Adam well, just, McKay. it becomes less, it becomes less insightful, it just becomes more of like him going, like being a know-it-all the entire time, so. Um, well, and it's also like, even if I don't know, there's something about the the comedy, despite you know, even though it is also part of the satire. Like even if the satire is not like 100% connecting all the time, it's at least still funny, which is not something you can say about like these other movies that he's made, where it's like, well, the satire is kind of not so good, but at least it's funny. Like I don't know, I haven't seen Vice, but my impression is it's not very funny. It's not. It's not. I, 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 remember, I remember watching and just being like, this is just like. It's it's a it's a weird lecture. Why am I having this lecture? <laughs> um, but I don't know. But yeah, those are that's Talladega Nights and Anchorman. I think they're worth you know if you want one silly movie. They're they're very silly movies. Um, all right. Well, I think a perfect lead into part two is is gonna come from Andrew. So I'm gonna turn it over to you. That's true. Here's another silly. This is a very silly boy. movie. Um, I watched. <laughs> I watched uh, Steven Soderbergh's Che, um, otherwise known as Che Part 1 and Che Part 2. Um, these are two movies that are both fairly long in and of, uh, in and of themselves. Uh, they're both like two hours and 20 minutes. Um, so, you know, it's like the, the majority of a Satan tango uh, that you're sitting through this biopic of Che Guevara. Um, um played by Benicio del Toro um, extremely well. His performance is probably my favorite thing about uh, both of these movies. Um, but these are both like contained stories about specific events in his life. 
Um, part one is, of course, about the Cuban Revolution. Um, and part two um, is about his involvement in a failed Bolivian revolution that I actually did not know a lot about. Um, one of the reasons why I watched these movies in the first place is just because I wanted to know more about uh, Cuba um, and specifically like how that like power, um, that, that change of, of the, the power um, structure um, happened there. Um, especially because like it's, it's really hard to, I mean, this... I was going to say it's hard to like get what feels like accurate information about countries like Cuba or Russia or China and the United States. Um, but you know, this is of course a American movie by an American filmmaker. Um, surprisingly though, it is both almost entirely in Spanish, um, which I don't think most like blockbuster filmmakers or, or people who make make like movies at the level that Steven Soderbergh does. Um, this was like his clout movie after the oceans, right? Like, yeah, he, yeah. Um, he's so just like, flexing. Somebody who does an oceans movie then makes like four and a half hours of like Spanish language Che Guevara um, like uh, apologia. I guess it would, it would be one way to put it. It's very sympathetic to him um, and to the cause. Um, it doesn't um, get, go into like a lot of like theory um, behind uh, the like the political push uh, that Che was part of. Um, but he, it does allow him plenty of opportunity to speak. Um, the first movie is intercut between um, him making military moves in Cuba um, and him speaking at the United Nations and being interviewed by like CBS news and stuff like that. And some of the most um, effective parts of the movie are when you're seeing those things at the same time, you're, you're watching um, the military action while you're hearing um, some of the the justification um, or or like explanation uh, from Jay. Um, now, I will say that this movie or these movies have a pretty big drawback for me, um, which is that they're they just don't feel like they earn their length to me. I mean, I, there's a way in which I can see why um, they are as long as they are. Um, they're about uh, process like the slow tedium of like building an army like th this is kind of a, a, a surreptitious uh, political movement that he's a part of and it has to like creep through the jungle like picking up people here and there on their way to um, to do this coup essentially um, and so like the day-to-day -day life of these revolutionaries is uh, pretty uneventful. Um, they're not getting into you know battles at every turn. They're being sneaky and they're they're trying to go undetected. Um, but in a in two and a half hour movie where you're you're not really getting a lot of plot to hold on to or a lot of characters that are particularly vividly drawn other than Benicio del Toro's Che, um, that can get a bit dry, um, which felt more true um, once I saw part two. Uh, that does not have any sort of um, like counterbalancing, intercutting thing. Um, you're just kind of with him in this failed Bolivian revolution until um, he eventually gets captured and dies. Um, and the the action that you're seeing in that movie is pretty similar to the action you're seeing um, in the first one. There are ways in which um, they serve as nice little counterpoints to one another. Uh, because, of course, one was a successful and one was an unsuccessful revolution, and you can kind of um, see the cracks along the way um, in the second one. 
Um, but overall, kind of feel like I would have preferred to just watch maybe one shorter movie than both of these super long ones. Um, I'm also maybe biased because I've never been a huge Steven Soderbergh fan. Um, there are a couple movies of his that I enjoy, um, but um, I've never really like been banging the drum for Soderbergh auteurism um, in the way that I know both both of my compatriots on the podcast have. Uh, my comrades, yeah. Michael, you have seen both of these, right? Do you want to say anything else about them? I have. It's been several years, but um, my memory is I, I liked it. Um, my memory is similar to yours, though, in that I found the first one more engaging, but I liked it overall. And he's He's like kind of entering this phase, like after he did the Oceans movies, after he did this movie, um, he went into this, like, I mean, he kind of goes in and out of these phases throughout his whole career, but he went into like this highly experimental phase after that, right? Didn't he do like the girlfriend experience and stuff like that, like where he's really messing around with digital cinematography a lot. And I, I remember thinking, I don't remember what like specific details on this but i remember thinking that like this feels like a transition film into that it was apparently um, one of the first big movies to be shot on the red cameras which have now become like industry standard um in a lot of ways um so i i wonder if it would have um looked a little bit more um innovative at the time and now i just like can't see like what's special about the crispness of this image because it's just so yeah. everywhere I don't know. I mean, if we're thinking about like Soderbergh tourism, like it makes sense that he would do a biopic of a revolutionary, like if not Che Guevara, then someone else, uh, because like, like kind of like one of the central thematic projects of his whole filmography is the discussion of like labor and exploitation under capitalism, right? Like that is like a solid through line throughout like most of his career. And this is kind of like his most explicit engagement with that in terms of how people conceptualize that, like the battle between, um, you know, communism and, um, and capitalism. Uh, and so I, I, it's kind of interesting as that um, in his filmography as well, uh, in that like, this is where he gets to engage with this sort of thing on an explicitly political level rather than like, let's say like High Flying Bird, right, which is about a labor action, but it is not really framed in terms of like we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, p politicians, right? It's framed through the uh, entertainment, like a, a wing of the entertainment complex, right? Um, so those are my thoughts having not seen the movie in maybe like five years or something. I remember I, I really liked the kind of, the, the process angle to it got a little tedious in the second half or the second movie, mainly because you lose the, uh, Fidel who like the whole Shay and Fidel scenes in the first one are great as you kind of see like, I, but I, I like the process because it kind of digs into any sort of, um, revolution or any sort of like uprising of any sort like how how complicated it can be even though you have a central idea like that like that's what's so great about the fidel shay dynamic in the first movie is because um if you like cut through all the bullshit they, they they're they're going for the same thing but they have, to, but they're they're both of two different minds about it, and you have Fidel who seems to be 
um, kind of endearing himself as that, like he's going like I'm, I'm like working for the people, but also definitely is much more veering toward the limelight um, and kind of the, you know becoming the face of this compared to Shay, Shay who who is just he's more like he, he's very much in the trenches to a degree in that revolt, which makes the whole second movie uh, you know that's that is what kind of makes the second movie a little bit more interesting because then he's forced to be the figurehead of it to a degree um and you kind of see where he he struggles at that and it kind of just shows you um the imperfections of of any sort of result like this not because they're they don't make any sense but because it's just such a fine line to marry all like like get all of these egos to kind of coalesce around the one idea um and it and i think it kind of gets at it in a way that's not condemning it, i don't feel like it's condemning uh communism at all it's more just kind of going it's difficult to get to kind of get all these people all on the same page and be able to follow one another um and that's what kind of was interesting to me about it and the way that i do think like the, was, oh, go ahead Andrew. i was just gonna say like it's interesting that you bring up fidel he is really the only other like fully realized character other than shay um in both of these movies and so yeah not having him in part two um it does feel a bit like a it loss hurts. but um i mean the the lack of him and and the fact that Shay is kind of going off and doing his own thing is um maybe one argument for like why it does need to be two movies or why it needs to be two stories um because one thing that i didn't really know about Shay Guevara is like the idea that he just like jumped around a lot of different countries and helped with various revolutions right he wasn't cuban um he came to cuba to help with the revolution because he was just a true believer in the cause and rather than like stick around and be a political leader who's like, no, I'm going to go find another country that's on the verge of revolution and help them out. Um, and he kind of does that until uh, he eventually meets his end. But um, the, what were you about to say, Michael? Sorry. Oh, I was going to, this is something that Zach said a few minutes ago, um, but like about like how complicated um, any sort of like movement or revolutionary movement is. And I think about like, so if we think, I've thought a lot about um, like the George Floyd Black Lives Matter uh, protests from 2020, and I think one of the interesting things that comes out of like when you have a big, um, you know, kind of social like civil disobedience or or like revolutionary movement, um, it's very easy to say a narrative about it. And like when I think about like what I was taught about history and like movements and that sort of thing, like there is a very clear narrative and like i could explain in broad strokes like what that narrative is about cuba as well um or just like che uh, guevara in general um and but like it's it when you get into like okay what actually went down and what happened you start getting into these this minutiae that is really it can be tedious at times. Like I listened to um, a podcast that was like multiple episodes, like hours and hours of uh, someone doing reporting in Portland during um, the Black Lives Matter um, protest there in 2020. And a lot of it was really, mundane's not the right word because there was exceptional circumstances, but a lot of it is really like, okay, at 8.55, the police moved to this block and started tear gassing people then. It's a uh, and so people moved to this block. The word I would use. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I remember thinking in the Bolivia uh, part, like part two, that that really 
captures something like a side of that sort of thing that we never see, um, which is uh, in the in the trenches of those sorts of like granular decision making stuff without any of the big picture narrative stuff. Because in part one, you have intercut with like his UN appear. It's at, it's at, it's at the UN, right? Where he's like explaining himself and explaining like what the cause is and that sort of thing. But in the Bolivia one, you don't have that. And it is entirely just like literally in the weeds, right? Because they're out in the wilderness, uh, you know, doing these things. And uh, there is something like interesting and not often portrayed, at least in Western media, about like, you know, what that sort of experience is. Yeah, for sure. Anything that I could say negative about this movie as a, a like a viewing experience, you could easily think of as a positive kind of like intellectually or philosophically, right? Your mileage is going to vary on whether or not um, like you kind of lean one way or the other on it. Um, but definitely worth checking out. For sure. um, all right, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to be talking some more Cuba as we talk about 1964 Soy Cuba after this. watch old movie series with uh, 1964's Soy Cuba uh, directed by Mikhail Kala, Kalatozov uh, from a script by Enrique Pineda Barnett and Yevgeny Yeptusenko Yeptusenko I think I'm, I'm going to go with that uh, the film now we don't have Russian names on this show very often no. the film stars uh, Sergio Corrieri uh, Sal- uh, Salvador Wood uh, Jose Gallardo uh, Jean Bousset and Luis Maria Calazo. Uh, a study in contrast set in, in and around Havana that explores Cuba's 1959 revolution, a young woman's fascination with the excess of an American-owned casino leads to her downfall in the eyes of her street vendor boyfriend. A tenant farmer revolts the only way he knows how, attacking the land he works. University students gain firsthand knowledge of political upheaval. And in the hills outside the city, the members of a poor peasant family are uh, patriotically swept up into the burgeoning revolt. Shortly after the 1959 Cuban Revolution uh, overthrew the United States-backed dictatorship of Batista, the socialist Castro government, isolated by the United States after uh, the latter broke diplomatic and trade relations in 1961, turned to the USSR in many areas, including for film partnerships. The Soviet government, interested in promoting international uh, socialism and perhaps in need to further familiarize itself with its new ally, agreed to collaborate with the Instituto uh, Cubano del Arte y Industria uh, Cinematográfico. 
uh, and finance a film about the Cuban Revolution. Produced by Most Film and ICAIC, the film was started only a week after the Cuban Missile Crisis and was designed to be Cuba's answer to both Sergei uh, Eisenstein's propaganda masterpiece, uh, Battleship Potemkin, and Jean-Luc Godard's free-willing romance, Breathless. You know, two movies that are very much the same. Uh, the director was given considerable freedom to complete the work and was given much help from both the Soviet and Cuban governments. The film was made uh, made use of many innovative techniques, such as coating a watertight camera uh, lens with a special submarine periscope cleaner so the camera could be submerged and lifted out of the water without any drops on the lens or film. At one point, more than 1,000 Cuban soldiers were moved to a remote location to shoot one scene, this despite the then-ongoing Cuban Missile Crisis. In another scene, the, uh, the camera follows a flag over a body held higher on a stretcher along a crowded street. Then it stops and slowly moves upward for at least four stories until it is filming the flagged body from uh, above a building. Without stopping, it then starts tracking sideways and enters through a window into a, uh, a cigar factory, then goes straight towards a rear window where the cigar workers are watching the procession. The camera finally passes through the window and appears to float along the middle of the street between the buildings. These shots were uh, accomplished by the camera operator having the camera attached to his vest, like an early crude version of a Steadicam. And the camera operator was uh, also wearing a vest with hooks on the back. An assembly line of technicians would hook and unhook the operator's vest to various pulleys and cables that span floors and building uh, rooftops. Uh, cinematographer Sergei Urasevsky, in a 1965 interview on the film, said, quote, We saw the film as a kind of poem, as, poetic uh, as a poet poetic narrative. I'm not saying that this is how it has actually turned out. What did absolutely uh, what, what we did... What did seem absolutely necessary to us was the creation of an image, to the point of hyperbole. We tried to get to the point where the viewer would not be just a passive observer of events happening on the screen, but would experience them uh, with the actor. I, as a cameraman, always wanted to do more than simply fixate what was happening in front of the camera. I'm interested in getting the basic themes of the scene. Love, loathing, misery, joy, despair. Rhythm is the key. Uh, I Am Cuba was shown briefly in Cuba in the USSR in 1964 and incurred the wrath of both Castro and Khrushchev. It wasn't released in any, other, in any other countries and vanished, but after three decades, the film surfaced without subtitles at the 1992 Telluride Film Festival tribute to Kala Tozov. Uh, the, film, the director had lived to see his tri its triumphant resurrection only months before his death. Under the auspices of Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese, Milestone Film and Video have added subtitles and put it into general release. Uh, and so during that re-release in 1995, the LA Times said, I Am Cuba concludes in the ruggedly beautiful uh, Sierra Mastra with tremendous uh, cumulative power as a peasant casts his lot with uh, Castro's guerrillas. In this post-Soviet era, however, the idealistic zeal that fuels all of this fiery film takes on a cast that's truly tragic. And Ebert, 1995, said, I Am Cuba is an anti-American propaganda film made as a Cuban-Soviet co-production that has been snatched from oblivion, restored, and released in the United States. Since the film's uh, prediction of a brave new world under Fidel Castro has not resulted in a utopia for Cubans he suffer, uh, who suffer under one of the world's most dismal bureaucracies, the film today seems naive and dated, but fascinating. Wow. Roger Ebert. CIA asset. Not a comrade. <laughs> yeah. 
I wonder why uh, Castro didn't like the movie because the last act is just like here's why it was cool that people joined Castro. I wonder if having been through the revolution, seeing it depicted, I don't know. I imagine when I ever when I see things that I've experienced or been through, like like this is not and this is not analogous at all, Andrew, except for this very specific aspect, but like. When you see movies set in a school, like, half of the time, don't they set your teeth on edge because it's like, uh, you know, that may have, like, pretty good narrative, yeah. but it's it's not right. Um, so I believe this was the first time for everybody watching this. Um, just, uh, let's, let's just kind of dive in on it. I mean, I, I spent, uh, part of the notes just, uh, expounding on the, uh, the sequence with the when they're the procession and that, that whole because the cigar because factory I, and everything I, I like paused the movie because I was like how the fuck did they just do that um, and there are a lot of <laughs> how the fuck did they just do that moments in this movie yeah yeah this is incredible but uh, what did you all take from it I think that was like one of the first things that stood out to me is because I'm used to I had seen um, the director's two other famous movies which are letter never sent and um uh the cranes are flying right um and so i kind of knew a little bit of like what his thing was but that said like i'm used to when i see um films that came out of like soviet bloc or like i guess in this point in case cuba the soviets were involved like when i when i see films that come out of that like there's a certain like uh there's a I don't expect to see like really flashy like theatrics like with the camera and film style like like this movie had and I was just kind of like blown away the whole time especially because it opens with like its most energetic sequence in the club right and it's like cross-cutting with all this like dancing and all that sort of stuff and uh, I was just immediately immersed and just captivated by the um just the just the energy of the the film style and like the inventiveness like the constant uh new ways of of depicting things um that i thought was just super cool and i don't know if this is the case uh since this movie was not widely seen in the u.s but it feels like I, I gotta I gotta feel like uh, Martin Scorsese uh, and Paul Thomas Anderson specifically are like drawing on this movie heavily with like some of their like '90s and 2000s movies. Uh, it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I think I've heard Paul Thomas Anderson cite it um, specifically. Yeah. For the, like the the scene in Boogie oh, Nights where like, yeah. the camera goes yeah. under the water of the pool. Uh, yeah. Well, and I can see Scorsese, like, in scenes from, like, me, even, like, his early stuff, like, Mean Streets and things like that, where, like, you just kind of have this congestion in, like, a bar or something. Uh, he also kind of moves around. Like, I, like there's a lot of scenes with, like, De Niro where he's just moving around places that kind of, it doesn't have, like, the exact same energy, but you can kind of see the technique yeah, following the same for way. Sure. And, like, the fact that this is in uh, the 1960s, like, early 60s, um, or I guess mid sixties, and you mentioned in your um, in your write up, Zach, about how like some of it appears to be done like with like uh, like what you would use Steadicam for, you know, decades later. But they're kind of jerry rigging something that functions similarly. And I 
you know, even with like, you know, movies that are flashier, like just the the acrobatics that the camera goes through at times in this movie are just like jaw dropping considering the era in which it was filmed. Well, I was reading um I was reading about how they filmed the sequence where the farmers uh he just found out that they're taking that the farm away and he's like chopping up the, the sugar cane. Um and he used this like like the, the cinematographer used like this infrared lens because it made it really like brought out the white of, of the sugar cane with like the sun and everything. And so uh, his goal was to make it look like when he starts like start like just kind of cutting like crazy, it's supposed to give the appearance that like the sugar cane around him that's like all over him, like it's like swords in different directions. So he's just like caught in like this mess of swords as he's cutting away. Um, and like they had like a gif in the article of the scene. And you're like, yeah, when you kind of think of it from that perspective, it's just like, he's like just engulfed by all of these all of these plants and it's just like sitting there trying to chop his way out um and that's kind of my takeaway for the most part you know like the narratives are are you know honestly the narratives are, are to a degree are kind of whatever to me it's more about this movie does such a it's it to, to a degree it's a very strongly wordless movie because it really just kind of sets you it's it's one of the better movies I've seen lately that really just sets you in a place, like whether you're in the mountains or whether you're in a club, um, you definitely you feel all of the tangible qualities of being in that place, regardless of whether you're following the plot that's happening there. Well, in that first um, the first story that happens where you start in the club and then they walk out of the club and like walk into, uh, like away from it into a slum or something like that. Um, and like there's just such an incredible like the the sense of place is used to the film's ends right like you have the contrast of like the the capitalist owned club versus you know the kind of like poor and like disenfranchised thing and it's done in not in one shot but it's done in a sequence in which you can see the when she leaves one and enters the other and um i thought that was really cool and every individual space you're in, you usually get a long shot just like walking through the entire space. So you get a, a sense of like the architecture of the place uh, that you're in, um, especially, you know, you mentioned earlier, Michael, that that first sequence where we're like up on the rooftop bar and like we keep going to like a level below and then a level below that as the camera is like doing all these impossible moves. Um, I actually didn't recognize at first that that's like the the intro to the first story i thought of it as like its own standalone um wordless sequence uh because the movie also starts with a, a long like narrativeless sequence where you, we have this the camera um in like a helicopter or something um just gliding over uh the treetops for a really really long time um, and then we're like down in the river like on the water level like following this guy on a boat uh, very slowly as you're like listening to a poem be read uh, incredible oh god yeah that, that, that whole sequence was incredible too that can that's what that's what sucked me in actually oh, before yeah. even the party sequence was just like it was just the guy paddling the boat and you're in like he's having to go under like kind of the the structures the bridges and stuff but then and the like cameras, honestly like, oh, i would have been fine if the movie would have just kept doing that like if if it was just a collection of cool images and like 
cool like visual experiences that give you a sense of like what Cuba is like, like on a on a vibes level, <laughs> as opposed to you know these these moral stories um, or these politically charged like fables. Um, I would have been fine with that too, and I'm not complaining about the politically charged fables. Uh, it's good agitprop, right? I like how all these different stories kind of serve as this patchwork um, and they all are like talking about the same things even though like um, in their actual specifics like they're they don't have anything to do with each other but they're kind of about these these broader forces of like um, money and military might and things like that and how they they screw over ordinary people um, but like yeah like you were saying Zach the way the movie shines the most is just like in the sheer visual inventiveness of it and like I don't need a character or a story to follow to just like be engrossed by what I'm, what I can see and what the camera is I think doing. it's cool too, because, um, I mean, you know, Cuba was, you know, before the, I don't know, like socialist revolution, like it was a colonized place, you know, and the movie shows that with like mm-hmm. the club and like with the, um, the bombings, the bombings. with the United Fruit Company I think makes an appearance. Um, And one Mm -hmm. of the things that often happens with like colonization is that um, the place itself is devalued um, except in as much as it is able to have resources extracted from it. So like you have the club, which is only there to make money that can be taken from like, you know, the folks here or from tourists or whoever. And that money leaves the leaves Cuba or, or stays with like the rich owner, you know, wherever they live. Um, and one of the kind of cool things about this movie is that all of this, um, visual care, uh, often goes toward, um, presenting like the landscapes of Cuba, uh, apart from, um, you know, capitalist or, or, or Western intervention or, or the colonized aspects of Cuba. There's like a national pride in like the Cuba that is not represented by like a colonized, you know, authority. And I think that that's like a kind of cool, like implicit thing in the project of the movie is like, you know, soy Cuba is not just like in those poems that get read, you know, at different points, like, you know, it's as it's as almost as if like in like you know the the kind of like you know uh uh like you know western capitalist version of cuba that internationally was known uh that's not cuba like soy cuba is like these farmers or these landscapes that like you would never go in if you were a, a tourist um not from cuba like there's something like really cool about the way that the camera itself captured like it, the visuals kind of suck in all of this like Cuban identity um, and makes it makes it beautiful and something to be proud of. Um, and I think that's that's neat. Well, it gives it gives everything the the same treatment. So like it's not it's it's funny. Like I wouldn't say that the movie's just like you know it's 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 predominantly Castro propaganda, but it also is kind of just like, yeah, like these are also the other facets of Cuba. Like these, these people out on the farm who are just living their damn life. Um, I think, and I like that they're handled with like, if, 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 if anything, the most like 
socialist ideal you you feel in the movie is the the use of the camera because the camera shoots the poor farmers as beautifully and as um, engagingly as they do the you know the the rich rich people at the club or the people on the streets in Havana like I mean because it's it's very there's no really there's no class system within how the camera is utilized I think that's what also is effective kind of to your point Michael about the movie um the one thing the one big topic that I do I do think we should spend some time on is just the concept of a propaganda movie. Um, it's honestly a, a topic I love talking about because I, I find it really entertaining that people constantly view the word propaganda as a negative term, even though it's a neutral term. Um, and so to me as I guess just to kind of open it up, what, how did you all, what did you all make of this as pro Castro propaganda kind of view, like viewing it to the side of like what we're, what we're used to seeing, which is Western United States predominated propaganda. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's interesting. Like when the movie takes place because it's being made after the revolution, but it's set right before the revolution um, and so so much of what we're seeing is not the movie seeing the praises of here's this new um, like government that we've put in place and all the great things it's doing for the people um, it's kind of justifying just replacing the old government <laughs> which was just like obviously um, you know just horrible for so many people in so many ways um, one thing that maybe two points of comparison for this to to other um, uh, propaganda films that we could talk about um, would be like Man with a Movie Camera um, which is a, a Soviet propaganda film that is just kind of like singing the praises of, of Soviet Russia and also doing the like real um, you know dizzying visual inventiveness stuff um, and then a movie like RRR uh, from this year where well, that movie has definitely like come under fire um, for the the ways in which it is doing apologia for the current Indian government. Uh, but most of what you're actually seeing, or pretty much all of what you're actually seeing in the movie, is is the same thing you're seeing in Soy Cuba, where we're like, it's set in the past before that revolution happens, and we're kind of uh, being given reasons why like people are motivated to do the revolution, right? Um, I don't know if I would necessarily say any of these three is like, better propaganda than the others um but i mean the the decision of like when to set your movie and what you choose to focus on i think really affects the way the audience is going to interpret like the propagandistic message. well sure it, to me though and I, and I was just like reading um some contemporary but also just reviews around when it was restored um in 1995 i mean i read two of them to you it's to me it's just so interesting and ironic how film critics um like sharpen their knives to attack this thing but then you know michael and i talked about the movie a number of weeks ago but you know they just kind of are 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 completely neuter to something like Top Gun. Right, or, exactly. Or something, you know, something or something like that that is like, or, you know, Rocky or something that's like just complete American propaganda. And that's what's always fascinating to me is just 
like again, that's what like propaganda is not inherently a bad thing, but at the same time, why are we not uh, critical of the propaganda that's being spewed to us on a on a monthly basis with a new Marvel movie or something like that? Just watching, you watch something like Captain Marvel, which is just strong uh, Air Force. You watch like Captain America, like it's 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 just that's kind of a fascinating thing to me. I think the one difference between some of these that we're talking about and American propaganda films is that usually the propaganda is sort of in the background of the American propaganda films, right? I mean, I know Top Gun is, like, set in the Air Force, but, yeah. like... Um, the... Well, in Rocky, there's literally a Rocky sequel in which Rocky, like, smashes uh, a Russian... Right, you know. but it's all, it's all like... Um, limited to iconography right it, the movies are not really digging into the ideas of like why our group is good and why the other group is bad and um, we're just kind of like following this story of a character that we like are being told to be endeared to and they happen to be like waving the flag I would disagree with that, and I because I think that there are different types of propaganda films, and America has all of them as well. Um, because you have a movie like, um, like let's take Zero Dark Thirty, right? You know, which had direct involvement from the CIA and to spin a particular narrative about the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? Like the war on terror, um, and that is a movie that is all about justifying a certain like set of actions that the U.S. military took. Um, and is like very focused on the ideas. And I think that there is a good argument for that being a propaganda film and a really effective one too. Um, and then on the other hand, you have something like Top Gun Maverick, which will not even mention countries that we're fighting against or like actual political objectives, right? It is entirely abstracted. And it, the entire message is just uh, American military good. And um, I, so I think like they happen in different ways. Um, in the United States. Um, and I mean, you've even got like some like counter, um, counter propaganda stuff, like, uh, or not counter, you have like things in the United States, especially during the cold war that are like, you know, like a movie like Dr. Zhivago, right. Is like, it, you know, it's, it was made in the time that it was made for a reason, right. You know, it's there to portray like the Russian revolution as a tragedy on a certain level. Um, and I mean, I know it's based on a novel and stuff like that, but I, I don't know. I guess I see. I guess it's not a British film, but regardless. Yeah. Well, and, but to Andrew's point, also, I think he brought up something interesting, is that we, at least in like modern terms, a lot of um, like you would like we're like this this movie that we're talking about right now is targeted for being propaganda because it's using it's it's relying more on cinematic language and it's um and people are more targeting like the content inside of it i think that to to andrew's point that it's kind of in the background is that because a lot of western specifically american filmmaking has become the dominant default for most of filmmaking today at this point um it's we, we you can't even really tell how like how, like the, the techniques being used well, that's propaganda yeah, the, the techniques being used for, for propaganda and so that's what also makes i think more i think you know to the audience's credit of, of not noticing it that's what makes it tougher to notice because it's so like ingrained in our psyche as being an acceptable form of, of movie making like isn't 
pretty much any movie that utilizes the iconography of the American American military, like, don't they have to go through like an approval process? So like, if if they want to use the actual equipment that the military if they use the does, equipment, yeah. yeah. So like, a mo- the the Michael Bay's Transformers movies um, are very much like working with the American military to to show off all those like tanks and helicopters and stuff like that. But like, no one would look at them and say they're propaganda films because like they're they're kind of it, like popcorn entertainment first and propaganda, maybe like third, but like there's that level of propaganda sprinkled into so much of American entertainment um, to where like, it's, it's harder to, to point and sneer at. Right. No, and that's true. That's, that's why I brought up Marvel earlier. I mean, Marvel's gotten to that, uh, that point. I haven't watched the full movie, but um, I've seen a lot of people writing about just how explicitly, the military propaganda is in that movie where like i think she is a so she Cap, with captain yeah Marvel. she like works for the air well they even had a there was an air force recruitment drive tied to that movie yeah and, and things like that and i think also just um you know the, the the marvel movies and their propaganda are kind of interesting not to completely derail us on a whole other thing but there is just kind of like this um idealistic american myth making it's kind of especially a through line for through their first few phases um i still contend that the first avengers movie is like a uh a a, a movie that was made so that it was like hey what if 9 11 happened but we won yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah um you know and so uh no I, and i think i think just the overall point that I'm, I'm trying to make is that that's what's so fascinating with movies today is that um we we you, you know, it's almost like you're criticizing a movie by calling it propaganda, and you're like, no, it's most movies have propaganda for something, whether you agree with it or you you don't agree with it. And to and to uh, getting back to Soy Cuba, I think it handles its propaganda better than most movies. Um, I think it's I think it, it is ex- pretty explicit about the message it's sharing, but like we talked about before, I think it it's 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 distributing. Um, it's distributing itself among these different stories of in these different classes in a way that I don't know if you necessarily get that from another propaganda. I will say that there there were moments in the movie that I thought like just if I'm like looking at from like an artfulness perspective, uh, for instance the the end of the movie which is the end of the last row the guy joins the the army and all that like that like I thought that was kind of like. I, I I thought it was pretty clunky, like how it transitions to like this kind of like almost newsreel montage of like, oh, and then the revolution succeeded. And there are other parts of the movie where it feels like, you know, very artfully done. So I think that when Americans think of propaganda, or at least like if I think back to like how I was thought of propaganda, the very end of this movie is what they think of where there's something directly looking at you on the screen saying here is what you should think um and now we're all gonna join Fidel right Castro. exactly yeah. and i i think that yes like we're taught that that's bad because like oh you should be a free thinker blah 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 like whatever um but i think another reason that's implicit in why that's bad is that it's artless um and i think that there's like an undercurrent of like when people criticize propaganda they're like these sheep in this other other country they don't understand how dumb like the government thinks that they are cuz they can just put this trash on them like i see people talk about this with chinese movies all the time to be honest um like where 
people kind of will critique how like the cheapness of the effects or things like that as like a backdoor into critiquing like um how the the government uses you know media in a kind of cheap way to you know just openly manipulate people um and i don't know i mean manipulation is often good in movies um but in terms of like the end of the movie is where like back of my brain like oh yeah this is propaganda like that's when it was most triggered and other parts of this movie i thought were had such like cinematic energy that it didn't always register even as propaganda to me and it's just much more blunt as a story that last chunk than than the others are i feel like in the other sections like the the conflict is much more small scale uh you get much more of a sense of these people as people um Whereas in the in the final story, it's like, you know, this here's a guy. Uh, he uh, he like was victim to a bombing, and then he joined the military, and the 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 revolution won. You know, it's I am glad I watched Soderbergh Shea movies uh, in in prep for this because like like we we're saying in the first part about like the long drawn out process of what a revolution is actually like that gets excised here, and we just kind of fast forward through that. Um. Yeah, well, and I think the I think the other thing, not to get too deep in the weeds about like the history of American media towards Cuba, but like the American media is is it, like is not giving you a good picture of of Cuba. You know, like like we I mentioned in the notes that like they point out like that I think it was a uh, CI operative Roger Ebert <laughs> saying that like they're like they're suffering from these conditions, and you're like, well, yeah, they're they're suffering from the conditions because we're imposing all these sanctions on them. You know? Well, and also like mid nineties, they were suffering from the fact that the Soviet union had just collapsed. You know, if, if all of a sudden, uh, you know, one of our major trade allies collapsed, like the United States would have some problems too. Exactly. Look at what we're dealing right now with, with, you know, the situation in Ukraine, yeah. like, yeah, we're, we're getting, we're getting, we're getting squeezed on stuff. And so that's, that's always the kind of ironic thing in any discussion with Americans about Cuba is that that's the kind of facet, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, if, if, you know, if a river was flowing into your, you know, onto your land and you like had fresh water and all that kind of stuff, you could do all the stuff with it, then yeah, you're doing great. But if, if somebody had the same land set up and the water was just cut off at the front and you had, so none of it was flowing in, yeah, you're going to fucking yeah. suffer. <laughs> and like, that's what we're doing to them. Um, but it, and it's just it's always the you know it, it, on the American side you, I think of like when Fidel Castro died the New York Times wrote this you know long long story about Fidel Castro and how he was just you know making the long suffering people of Cuba suffer forever um, and then like got quotes from the Cubans but the Cubans were people at Versailles and Miami Florida so naturally they're gonna be negative toward Castro because they left Cuba to be in Miami because at, because they at the, in their hearts are capitalist like yeah you're not going to get good quotes on that you know and so it's also like like i'm to me i'm willing to give this it's it's propaganda like a a large pass just because i'm like yeah we do we do that shit constantly in terms of trying to describe this country right and i I know what story like a country tells about themselves um though of course this one's a little more complicated because it's a russian filmmaker telling a story about cuba um but yeah, I don't. I think that even if you are going to be critical of Cuba, and I'm sure there are reasons to be critical of the Castro administration. I don't know enough about it to be able to say, um, but um, you you want to to hear like what is their narrative 
Um, like that's part of the calculus, right? Yeah, and and there's also there's always the nuance of like yeah there is probably a gazillion issues with uh, with the Castro administration. You know who also has a gazillion issues on a daily basis? Us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you know. Right. Yeah. That is very rich. Like as soon as you get like films that are critical of America or even like just discussion, I think about this all the time as an educator because this is often where these battles or lines are drawn. But you know there's all this rhetoric about like we're teaching people to hate America if we say things that are negative about it. And it's like, well, how are you going to say that and then criticize other countries that like, they're not allowed to think critically about like, you know, political dissent or something, you know, uh, whatever. No, we're a stupid country. We are. Any, I stand by that. Any last thoughts, uh, on soy Cuban? I think after we've kind of, mold over the question of like what makes good propaganda um i think that two big qualities for me would be is it honest like is it being transparent about what it's propagandizing um as opposed to a lot of american um propaganda which which like hides it right um and just normalizes it through the hiding um and two like how good are the values it's propagandizing right like propaganda like zach said it's a neutral term it could be used to argue for good things it could be used to argue for evil things um you know triumph of the will propaganda arguing for evil things and so like that does come into uh, account when you're deciding whether or not this is good propaganda it might be effective but is it good is it is it like a force for good in the world that's what propaganda is it is like um celebrating or spreading a particular set of values um and so i don't know most of the the values that are being criticized um um, or like most of the arguments that are being made in soy cuba um feel pretty sound uh to me like the ways in which it's talking about the way that ordinary people are kind of uh being um left in the dust by these larger capitalist forces and larger military forces um, as they're being um, colonized, right? I'm curious, like, when you talk about, like, is the propaganda honest? Like, I have no window, I have no way of answering this question, but um, to what extent do, um, I mean, let's say, like, in Nazi Germany, right, when someone watched Triumph of the Will, to what extent did someone sit down and think, I'm being propagandized to, or to what extent was it just since it was the of the moment thing happening, did they just perceive it as such? Because I think about like, I mean, there are people in America and including some critics who will look at a movie like Top Gun or something and say it is propaganda, but the vast majority of people do not. And because it is uh, one, not telling us that it's propaganda, but two, also just kind of upholding what we're used to. But if you took that movie to, I don't know, like Afghanistan or something, would they feel the same way? They might more easily identify it as propaganda. And I wonder if, like, a movie status as propaganda just becomes um, more obvious when you're not in that political milieu that it's, like, speaking to you within. Or, you know, in some cases less obvious because, again, RRR, that movie is being per- uh, perceived by largely white American audiences as being like really politically savvy. Um, and it's being uh, perceived by a lot of like Indian audiences as a carrying water for a very cool mm. regime That's true. right That's now. True. Um, and like, if you don't have the context, 
you just can't see that. Yeah, and I think on our level, like, I, this is something that we talked about a number of weeks ago, but um, I don't think we're, it's not, we're not training we're not training people to think critically about that. So I think it's easier for like an Afghan audience to be like, Oh, this is American propaganda because they probably are more preconditioned to be critical and negative toward America. Rightfully so. Um, and we're, I mean, I'm sure we can all speak to it. We're conditioned to not that you almost like it, it takes a while to decondition yourself from, uh, feeling bad about criticizing America because you're so conditioned to think that that's, that that's almost like the 11th command. We're also taught sort of implicitly not to see ideology at all, right? Like there are things that are political and there are things that aren't political. (laughs) And like, if you don't mention like the name of a political party or the name of a politician, that it's not political, but like, I don't think many people listening to the podcast need to be reminded of this, but like everything is political, right? Like every, thing you're seeing in a movie is like shaped by some sort of like larger uh political or cultural forces and the way those things are being depicted is going to be like endorsing or rejecting the status quo about those things um and like just being able to see like the ideological underpinnings of any um piece of media that you encounter is like just a valuable skill and and watching propaganda films is a good way to to hone that skill like it's a good moral. Watch more propaganda. <laughs> and with and with that, we'll end with a nice moral. Um, all right. Well, I'll wrap up this <laughs> episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter and Instagram at handle at cinematary, and on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash cinematary, where we list all the movies we talked about in the episode. If you would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash cinematary. Thank you so much to our supporters, uh, Cam, Chad Newsom, Corey Willingham, Candace Sisson, Ron Hayes, Teresa Marsathi, uh, Titus Arthur, and Tyler Chandler. Thank you so much for your patronage. Uh, next week, we're going to continue our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with Pink Flamingos from 1972. So, um, getting back in the John Waters. Uh, yeah, the pun didn't really work as much as I thought it would. Jump taking a dive into the John Waters, you know. Uh, we, with our camera coated in a substance so that we don't come out with drops on us. Um, well, we got, and at, including that, we have four more episodes left of the series. So if you have not uh, caught up, head over to cinematary.com. Um, under the podcast tab, we have all the all the episodes and videos there if you would like to catch up on an episode. Um, or you will go back and listen if you want to go and watch the movie along with us. So always recommended. But until then, thank you all for listening.